I'm a fixer by nature. So, like, when something breaks, my instinct is I want to fix it. And I can't fix everything, and there's a lot of things I can't, but I'm going to reach out to somebody who can because I'm a fixer uh, by nature. I also take this fixing part of, of my nature into the other elements of, I, of my life. So, for example, when someone shares with me something they're going through or there's a conflict in a relationship, something like that, I, I want to fix it. I want to make it better. I want to shine a little light. I want to try to be an encouragement in some way. I have found, however, that being a fixer is not always what's being called for in the moment. I asked my wife, Marilyn, if I could share this, but on more than one occasion, I'm, more occasions I'm comfortable to admit, after she has shared with me something that's been hard, she has had to gently remind me, I don't need you to fix this. I just want you to listen. I'm rather embarrassed how often that happens. I'm doubting that I am the only one here in that situation. She knows I'm a fixer and actually kind of likes it around the house. It's great if I can work on the things that break down. But I am learning that there are many more times when it's better not to be too quick to run to the workbench, not too fast to offer a solution, but rather be a listener be a learner, a sharer, a participant, if I can, in the present situation. That can be hard for fixers. But the truth is, some things just don't have easy fixes. Grief is one of those things. Suffering, fear, doubt, doubt about the presence of God. Which brings us to today's question, how can I believe in a God who isn't there. Our sermon series is actually on this, questioning our faith, exploring major objections to faith in Christ. And today we consider this question, how can I believe in a God who isn't there? There's a variety of ways to look at that question, but I want to consider it as this. How can I believe in a God who seems absent? How can I believe in a God who appears distant, silent, uncaring even? Like he's not there. I'm guessing many of us who are here today or listening are probably doing well, enjoying life this summer, and that's awesome. God created a good world, and he gave us senses to enjoy it. Even after Genesis 3, when Adam's sin stained everything in creation, even still, God is merciful, and there are good things to enjoy, good days good moments. And yet we also know how quickly those can change, right? If you know the movie uh, Finding Nemo, the Pixar movie, there's a scene with the two fish, Marlin and Dory, and they're enjoying this happy globe, glowing orb of, of light in the dark sea, when suddenly they realize it's the bioluminescent lure of a hungry anglerfish. And you might remember what Marlin says, good feelings gone. Good feelings gone. Just like that, good feelings gone. When tragedy strikes, senseless violence. Each week it seems like we hear more. A diagnosis of cancer, disease, death, depression, suicide, unbelievable suffering. Everything that can drop us to our knees and cry out, God, where are you? Why don't you do something? How long will you remain silent? When God seems far away, when it feels like he's abandoned us, is there a way to believe? 
Scripture says yes. Actually, the Bible has a lot to say about this. And in God's good grace, he even gives us a wonderful tool called lament. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. I don't know if you knew you were going to consider lament when you came to church this morning, but that's where we're going. There's even a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. What is a lament? And how can that help us address the question of God's silence? By definition, to lament is to express deep pain, grief, sorrow, regret. Sometimes it happens through words, sometimes through actions. Not everyone expresses grief the same way. But Christian and non-Christian alike both know that sorrow is a part of our human experience. We lament loss. We grieve the passing of loved ones. We lament loneliness, aging, injustice. Our hearts get broken, relationships fail, and we lament. Biblical lament, however, goes further than just giving voice to the confusion or anger or pain that we may be feeling at the moment. Biblical lament attempts to give our grief a pathway when we don't understand what's going on and when it appears God doesn't appear to be doing anything. I found a helpful resource in the last couple of weeks. I've used it as part of my preparation. It's a book by Mark Vrogop called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. In it, the author defines lament this way. Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. It's kind of a long definition, but I like it. Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart, wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. He goes on to say, As Christians, we affirm that the world is broken, but that God is powerful and faithful. Lament stands in the gap between the pain and the promise. He notes accurately, I think, that we don't often express lament in our worship services. Maybe because lament is the song none of us would choose to sing, there's something about expressing grief that makes us uneasy or seeing grief, observing grief in someone else. It makes us uncomfortable at times. But as we'll hopefully come to understand, biblical lament is actually a gift that can sustain us. Because, as this book suggested, lament is how we bring our sorrows to God. To lament is actually Christian. You may know this already, but did you know that about a third of the Psalms can be considered or classified a lament? Maybe that's why we love the Psalms so much, why we turn to them quickly when difficult times happen. To know that others have experienced grief and deep emotions and they have dark doubts and yet have remained steadfast, even in the absence of answers or relief. Turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm chapter 13. Psalm 13 is going to be on the screen as well here in just a moment. Psalm 13 is is one of many that we could have looked at, but this one had six verses, and I kind of like that. Let's look at Psalm 13 as we consider the question, how can I believe in a God who isn't there, who seems absent? The heading for this psalm in my Bible says, A Psalm of David. I'll be reading from ESV, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? 
How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light on my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Exactly two years ago today, Bill Wilting died, July 10, 2020. Bill was, uh, some of you know, the heart and soul of DeSoto Youth Ministries just up the road, along with his wife, Donna. I was privileged a few years ago to take a mission trip with, with Bill to Nicaragua with uh, several students from CBC. Kyle, you were there too. And while on mission just a couple of years ago in 2020, he contracted some sort of mystery tropical illness that led to multiple hospital stays and procedures. And during those difficult months, there were prayers and gatherings and deep intercession for Bill's healing and return to ministry. It still hit as a shock when I got the news that he had died. And this, it's true, as a believer, he received the ultimate healing and that he is with Jesus. But family and friends were left grieving the earthly loss of a faithful servant of Christ. Did God not hear their prayers? Their long season of grief had begun, and for some it continues still. Where is God when it seems like he isn't answering our prayers? Where was God when David found himself in whatever situation he was in there in Psalm 13? There's no way to know what it was for David, what was going on, what he was facing, but no matter what it was, he gives full vent to his lament. He opens up his heart through a lament. And these six verses can easily be divided into three sections. It may even be that way in your Bible, of two verses each. And I'm going to suggest that they provide three examples or three steps that can help give voice, direction, and hope in our suffering when it feels like God is distant. How can I believe in a God who isn't there? I've subtitled this message, Learning to Lament. The first step of lament in this psalm is what I'm calling the honest complaint. Bring it to the Lord. The honest complaint, bring it to the Lord. Notice the first words of Psalm 13. How long, O Lord? The first thing to notice is the direction of the question. How long, O Lord? It's not even a complete sentence yet. He hasn't even identified what the problem is. It's, it's just this desperate anguish cry, how long, addressed not to the empty skies, but directly to the Lord. And the word Lord, as you notice, is capitalized, as it so often is in the Psalms in the Old Testament, because it's the covenant name of God. It's revealed to Moses when God described himself as the I Am, Yahweh, the great I Am. O covenant God, O Lord, how long? This might be the most important thing from this morning, I don't know, but the pattern that we learn from lament in the Bible is first directing our complaints to the Lord. Listen to a few other quick examples from Scripture. Psalm 10, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Job 23, Job lamented, God, you've made my heart faint. 
the Almighty has terrified me. Habakkuk 1, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Jeremiah 12, O Lord, why does the way of the wicked prosper? It's even darker in chapter 20. O Lord, you have deceived me. In the New Testament, Mary lamented to Jesus in John 11, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus himself, praying in agony in Gethsemane, cried out, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And in Second Corinthians, Paul says he pleaded to the Lord three times to remove a thorn in his flesh. What we see, the Bible teaches and encourages us to bring our complaints to the Lord. And what is a complaint? Complaint is actually kind of an odd word to use. It has negative connotations in our minds. We aren't normally attracted to complainers. I mean, who wants to hang out with, with a bunch of whiners, right? Is there a right way to complain? Look at verse 1 and 2 again. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? The psalmist's first step in complaining is to direct them to God. And notice the four longs, how longs, the four complaints being levied at God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? It's almost as if the psalmist believes the psalmist has completely abandoned him. He's chosen for some reason not to come to his aid. How long will you hide your face from me? For God to uh, hide his face is not good. I think we understand that. In the Old Testament book of Numbers, the Lord gave Moses the words of a blessing that Aaron the priest was to give to the people. It says this in Numbers 6, The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So the Lord shining his face or turning his face toward someone is to say, I bless you, or there's favor given. So here in Psalm 13, it feels like God has turned his face away, removing his favor. So the psalmist continues, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the way, all the day? It seems like the psalmist has been racking his brain for answers only to come up empty. And I'm guessing that some of you have felt this way. Like you've exhausted all your options, all your ideas, even all your prayers, and you have nothing more to cry out to God for, leaving a sorrow in your heart all the day. The fourth complaint, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? I don't know. This might be the actual reason of the lament, an enemy somehow being lifted up over him. Enemies not identified. It could be a, a physical person. It could be a power bringing some sort of personal calamity or that person boasting victory. Or it could be the enemy of suffering or being close to death. Of these four how long statements, the Baker commentary says this, time itself becomes a destructive force, wearing down a man's ability to hold out and intensifying the suffering to an inhuman level. How long until God does something? Surely God hears, but he's not acting. To the psalmist, it seems 
There's something that seems incompatible with what he knows about the character of God. This delay in response is making him wonder, God, do you care? Have you abandoned me? I actually find the fact that these laments are preserved in Scripture to be encouraging. For us to know that we, too, can bring our own uh, questions, our own doubts to the Lord. God can handle when we bring those to him. Laments help us name what is wrong or unjust or painful to the God we believe in, even though we don't understand. In September of 2012, so coming up on 10 years ago, if I do the math, uh, Jack Houghton sent an email to the church and other friends. I still have a copy of the document that he wrote, believe it or not, after all these years. It's titled, How Long, O Lord? And it starts like this. It has been 10 months since my sweet Lori went home to be with Jesus. Some days it seems forever, other days like it was yesterday, and still others like it hasn't really happened. Has it? Some of you will remember this. This was a very tragic time in, in Jack's life after the sudden unexpected death of his wife, Lori. It was a shock to all of us. It was one of my, I would say, one of my darkest days in ministry, just t- difficult. Though for Jack and family, it was so much more. He wrote this 10 months later. And while I'm not going to share all these pieces of it, there were glimmers of hope that were starting to be found But his complaints and pain were still very much real. I'm just going to read a couple excerpts. And Jack, you told me I could do this. Right, okay, you go. (laughs) He wrote this. I am not strong. I am not a lone ranger. I will never get over this, never be the same again. Beating against the waves of emotions that come seemingly out of nowhere is futile. There is pain in some songs we sing at church. Even the words are wounding. I'll feel completely lost without my soulmate. My grief is personal to me. How long, O oh Lord? Jack could have responded with self-centered rage at God, and honestly, he may have at times. I'm sure he felt like it. But here are the complaints that were formed were the burning yet honest and, I believe, humble questions. How long, O Lord? Bring our honest complaints to God. It may be for an extended season. Grief does not have a timetable. And while that's true, as we move to the next point, I also say that uh, it's not good to get stuck there in complaint because complaining is not meant to be the end. The next two verses And Psalm 13, help lead us to the next step, which I'll summarize as the earnest plea, ask boldly. The earnest plea, ask boldly. Most of us don't have issues asking God for stuff, right? I mean, we probably do it all the time. I do. Uh, Protection, health, safety, uh, provision. But when our asking comes out of deep agony, those asks are more urgent. So we read in Psalm 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light on my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. There's three imperatives in that first verse, or verse 3. Consider, answer, and light up my eyes. The first is consider. Other translations say, look, It literally means to gaze intently at or into something. It's a bold request 
calling for God to look closely at the psalmist's desperate situation. So in verse 1, the complaint was that God had hidden his face. So in verse 3 here, he says, look at me. Pay attention to my dilemma, my crisis. Restore your favor. The second imperative is in response to God's absence or silence. He says, answer me, O Lord my God. Notice that there's a, a relationship here. He says, O Lord my God. This is the God that he has trusted, and as his God, he should give an answer. And then he says, light up my eyes. Not too long ago, I was, I was reading First uh, Samuel, and there's an account in chapter 14 of King Saul's son Jonathan battling the Philistines. And the Lord won the victory that day, but the battle was fierce. The people were famished, Jonathan included. And it says there came to a point where Jonathan found some honey, and he put some to his mouth. And immediately it says, his eyes became bright. The psalmist's request here is the same. Light up my eyes. Revive me, Lord. Give me refreshment lest I sleep the sleep of death. And not only to keep him from dying, but for two other reasons. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him, and lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. If the psalmist were to die, or if the enemy would be victorious, the fear is that it would appear that the enemy was stronger than the one trusting God, or even God himself. So the psalmist calls on God to act to keep that from happening. These are earnest pleas, bold requests for God to act. Scripture teaches we are to pray this way. As a church, uh, I believe we have prayed earnestly. Uh, This year in particular, I've, I've seen prayer requests, and you have too. You've heard many prayers for people like Bill Gottschalk, Marlis Ortman, Marilyn Just, Judy Clausen, Tom Hardy, and others. There have been bold requests for healing, for recovery, for jobs, for strength, for the gospel to go out. This week, the Averills shared with me some very specific requests. They are praying fervently and boldly to the Lord. And Glenn even commented that their family feels peace and even joy when they cry out to the Lord to act, even though they don't have any answers yet. A week ago, I visited Tom and Debbie. Tom had just gotten home after another frustrating hospital stay, and they asked us to keep praying fervently, boldly, for Tom's healing, for the cancer to be dealt with. And I asked Tom, Tom, how how are you doing with Jesus? And he replied by quoting Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He said he believes he'll come out on, on the other side of this, but either way, he said, he's secure. They are choosing to trust the Lord, which is the, the last step of this lament. But before we get there, I just want to say this. There may be some listening right now who are struggling greatly with God, disappointed in God's slowness to answer, or facing inexpressible pain with no relief in sight. You may be ready to give up on the whole Christian thing because life is too hard and God just seems not to care. But before you choose not to believe, I pray you could still turn to God in the midst of what you're going through. 
And if you can't yet turn to God, turn to someone else in the church who can help you, who can pray for you, even on your behalf, because that is what a healthy church should do. First Corinthians 12:26, speaking of the church as the body of Christ, says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. In Romans 12:15, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, because there is hope. There's hope in community. There's hope in the Lord, even hope in lament. After bringing our honest complaints to the Lord, after making our earnest pleas and bold requests, we come to the final section, at least in this lament, Psalm 13, the confident hope, choose to trust. The confident hope, choose to trust. Verse 5 begins with the most amazing sentence that begins, but I. You'll notice as you read other laments in the Bible that there is often a transition word, a small but powerful word or phrase, yet, but, however. When you find those words, I encourage you to underline them, treasure them, Verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Notice that the first line and the last line are in the past tense. I have trusted in your steadfast love. He has dealt bountifully with me. There's history here between God and his people. And the psalmist looks back on that history, what God has shown himself to be in the past. And he comes to the place of trusting that he will be that again in spite of the present reality. He looks back in order to look forward. Is that easy? No. Does it take faith? Absolutely. The answer hasn't come yet. The darkness still remains. And in the end, each of us is faced with a choice of whether or not to trust God. Will he be true to his character, his faithfulness, his promises, his covenant love to his people, even though we cannot see or understand his ways? The author of this book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, describes trust this way. Trust is believing what you know to be true, even though the facts of suffering might call that belief into question. I find that encouraging. Trust is believing what you know to be true, even though the facts of suffering might call that belief into question. And what is true is God's steadfast love. I love this term in Scripture, steadfast love. Other versions may say unfailing love. We see it often in Scripture. It's who God is. Way back in Exodus 33, Moses asked to see God's glory. That's a bold request, by the way. Exodus 34, verse 6, God answers this way. It says that the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed his name. Listen to this. The Lord, the Lord, a God most merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means 
clear the guilty. That's the God we trust. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness. You know, as I've thought about it this week and as I look over and see people's faces, I see and remember so many examples of people here who have trusted God in the midst of suffering who have been a personal encouragement to me. More recently, it's been people like Tom Hardy or Dave Haley, who this week shared with me an 11-page treatise or testimony about his battle with cancer titled, Our God is an Awesome God. Sean Averill, who told me that when he's down, he reflects on old hymns and scripture like Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above. Stephen Carrier, who, like Sean, is in a wheelchair but remains steadfast and encouraging. Kyle Zellner, who I've heard say multiple times, if it wasn't for Jesus, I don't know where I'd be. Glenn Averill shared with me a, a poem he wrote last month in a difficult time, and it starts this way. I come to the throne of grace. Please wipe the tears from my face, for this is a holy place. I'm needing my Lord's embrace. For you are my Lord and King, the master of everything. My sorrow and sin I bring. To your steadfast love I cling. And back to Jack's 10-year-old letter that I found again last month, How Long, O Lord, he included this summary statement, and he did it in the middle. Very clever, Jack. Summary in the middle. That was unsurprising. At least I believe it's a summary statement. It says this, I have no choice but to hold firm to his hand and trust. Lean and rely on him completely. Psalm 13 closes with, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. That is confident trust. My heart shall yet rejoice. Even when the current situation is bleak, even when there is no answer and no action, the psalmist says his heart will yet rejoice. Even if we don't experience answers or deliverance in this lifetime, God will be true to his character and steadfast love. Therefore, the psalmist can declare, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He has dealt bountifully with me, with us. How do I know? Because I can look back at Scripture and see from beginning to end that God has been with us. In fact, I think that's the simple theme of the Bible. God is with us. There are so many examples. I'm just going to read a couple in closing. Joshua 1.9, the Lord speaks to Joshua and says, Don't be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you are. Psalm 23.4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. And the best proof that we have that God is with us is through his son, Jesus. Where we read in Matthew 1.21, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God sent Jesus, his son, Emmanuel, to be with us so that all who trust in him would be forgiven of their sin and have hope and salvation in him. Earlier I said that I'm a, I'm a fixer by nature. 
but I, I can't fix the sin problem, my sin problem, or the sin problem that all of us have that separates everyone from God. Jesus came to live a perfect life, to be the perfect sacrifice for our sin. He suffered more than anyone ever has. Falsely accused, persecuted, abandoned by his own friends and disciples on the night that he was crucified, bearing the unbearable weight of sin. Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Think of that. My sin, yours through all time. And in that moment, Jesus cried out these anguished words of lament from Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet Jesus remained obedient to the Father. In his dying, he brought us forgiveness, eternal life with him. He was raised to life three days later gave us his spirit and reigns in heaven until the day he returns to make all things right. That is the gospel. That is the good news that we speak often every week in church. How can I believe in a God who isn't there, who seems distant? Take it to Jesus. Learn to lament some of the things I've learned. Bring your complaints to him. Ask boldly. And on that, when you feel like you can't pray anymore, Trust the uh, blessed promise of Romans 8, 26, that the Spirit himself intercedes with, for us with groanings too deep for words. And then trust in faith, believing that God is faithful, that he indeed is with his children. If you have trusted Jesus, you have this hope in a God who is with us in every joy in every trial. And you can say or agree with Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you have not yet trusted Jesus, the invitation is there today to confess sin, cry out to him, for that is a prayer that he will always answer. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we admit that we do not understand your ways. In fact, Scripture says that your ways are higher than ours, as the heavens are higher than the earth, and your thoughts the same. And yet we still grieve because there's brokenness. We long for, for peace, for relief, for things to be made right. Too often, Lord, we misunderstand Silence, your silence is a lack of care. Forgive us, Lord. But thank you for the gift of lament, the gift of community. In lament, it allows us to bring our pain and our questions, our burdens to you. And Lord, we ask that you help us in our, in our weaknesses. Give us boldness to approach your throne of grace with confidence because you are with us. Thank you for your steadfast love and faithfulness. We thank you for your name, names that we are going to recall during communion time next. We love you, Lord, and we trust you. We need you. Amen.